past couple weeks, I've been speaking about uh, meditating on the Word of God through Psalm 1 and Joshua chapter 1. And uh, before I move on to the sermon, I do have to bring a correction. Last week I did mention that uh, God spoke to Joshua the one time in chapter 1, and then after that it was just through the Word. But uh, that was a mistake on my point. Uh, He actually spoke to him several times in the first 13 chapters, so... To give me that oversight, so I just wanted to bring correction. My wife picked up on that. So it's great to have a godly wife who's studying the scriptures to keep me on my toes. Bless God. She enjoyed that. Kimmy enjoyed that. John enjoyed that. I want you to know that. But uh, praise God. I don't stand above correction. Understand this. I do not stand above correction, all right? I'm just a human being doing the best I can in God's work. Okay. But I want to speak about uh, a continuation. I always say this when I go into the Old Testament and I pull out a text out of the Old Testament. I want to speak about how to live for God. Whatever the Old Testament says, the New Testament says better. It's really important for us to understand that. And I want to show you the way God uh, does it in the New Testament about what obedience is. And so I chose this text and it's going to be two-part sermon and uh, so I will do part one today. And uh, But let's get into it. Living sacrifices. Let's read. One second. Let me pull it up. When I'm there, I'll let you know. Just uh, two verses. The Apostle Paul's writing. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we know now that your will is good, it's acceptable, and it is perfect. We see it being played out in our life on a daily basis. You've gotten us to love the unlovable. You've gotten us to be living sacrifices. You've changed us from the inside out. We know fully well you're not finished with us yet, and it's beautiful God, to know that you have called us out of darkness and into the light. And that your way, God, your way, and only your way, is the best way, God. It is perfect. Forgive us for all those times we thought we were perfect without you, God. And thank you that now that Jesus is in our life, he is truly the light of our life. And he's shown us the perfect will of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to have a substitute or a subtitle for the text, uh, Living Sacrifices, we read Living Sacrifice, that's Paul's appeal to the churches to live as living sacrifices, I would call it genuine Christianity. That's what I would call it, genuine Christianity. You know, I've been witnessing a lot to a lot of young Christians, I've been witnessing to people and, uh, who I believe and hopefully are being drawn to God, and uh, so I've been, I realize as I... Uh, interact with a lot of people, there's so much misconceptions of what Christianity is. There really, really is. I remember that when I was a Christian, a young Christian, I had so many misconceptions. The truth of the matter is I was a very religious person. I went to Mass, I did a lot of things, but I had no idea who Jesus Christ was. I'm going to be honest. With you. I had no understanding of the Christian faith. And I find that there's a lot of friends and family in, in, in our community, in our lives that we're talking to, that really have no idea about Christ. They have no idea about Christianity. And, and they don't understand this, living sacrifices. People
people will laugh at us because of our deep convictions about God. You know that, right? I remember speaking to somebody how me and my wife won't go to an R-rated movie. Matter of fact, we don't even watch PG movies anymore because I'm not interested in seeing two naked people on a 25-foot, 25-by-25 screen having sex. That doesn't interest me. And then to try to sit there and make it sound like, oh, I'm so sophisticated. That I'm above the base nature. That, that's not arousing to me. Let me tell you now. It arouses me. And I don't like it. I'm a man like anybody else. Are you with me? Yes. And people, they, they laugh at that. They think, oh, you Christians, you, your Bibles, you're all crazy. You know, because we're living sacrifices. And that is the dis continuity in the community. They don't know what genuine Christianity is. They think because you go to church and then you do what you want to do, it's Christianity. Guess what? It's not. We're going to find out what genuine Christianity is and why we do the things we do. Why I don't want to curse no more. Why I don't want to watch that stuff. Why I don't talk a certain way no more. Why I don't live a certain lifestyle no more. That all my friends and acquaintances, it's been many years, 30 years to me, so a lot of those people understand who I am now. But when you're a first turn to Christian, and you all of a sudden you've got these new Christian attitudes and these new values about life, the world doesn't understand us. They really don't. And we're going to explain why. How many people want to know why? Okay, we're going to explain that why. Most people in this room or even in, in this northeast portion of the United States know to some extent what cultural Christianity is. Cultural Christianity is what most of us come out of. It's just a cultural thing. You're born into Christianity, maybe a Protestant, maybe a Roman Catholic, maybe Greek Orthodox. It's like being known as, hi, my name is Brian, I'm Irish and I'm Catholic. Or my name is Terry, I'm, I'm Syrian and I'm Orthodox. Or my name is John and I'm a Protestant uh, Presbyterian. And, and so cultural Christianity is just, it's a name. It's a religious cultural marker that defines something about you. But it's not genuine Christianity, make no mistake about that. There is a major difference about what we're going to read tonight or what we just read and what genuine Christianity really is against, what cultural Christianity is. Was anybody a cultural Christian at that time besides myself? Did you go to church and go through the motions but nothing would ever change in your life? You didn't really care what your actions, you didn't care about sin, you didn't do this. You, You were religious, you went to church once in a while, but really at the end of the day you lived for yourself. That's not a living sacrifice. That's selfishly living. Big difference. But when it comes to actually and accurately explaining what they mean, they have no idea what the Bible says about Christian religion, the cultural Christian. And these two verses of scripture that I read tonight, what Paul is teaching us, are the seeds to what genuine Christianity really is. Or better, what a genuine Christian is. So as we go through the text tonight, I'm going to go through a little bit of it. This is part one and two. I have to explain what the book of Romans is about. Then I'll explain living uh, sacrifices next time. But my approach will be uh, the before and after principle. How many people know the before and after principle? How many nutritional things are being sold out because you see the fat guy like this? He's sticking his stomach out. He said, I can't even stick it out. But then he's sucking it in like this. That's the before and after picture. You know? they, they got this big thing. Because they're trying to sell you something. 
there's the girl, she's, you know, 300 pounds, and all of a sudden she's in a bikini because she went on a seven-day diet. And she ate grapefruit for seven days, and all of a sudden, you know, the before and after. So we understand that, but understand, Paul is using a before and after picture here. So before we can really understand what Paul is saying in these two verses of what a genuine Christian is, we need to understand the 11 chapters that precede this verse. The 11 chapters... Uh, that we precede this is how someone becomes a Christian. That's what's important. Chapter 12 to 15 is what it is to live as a Christian. But chapters 1 to 11 is how and why someone became a Christian. We spend too much time putting the cart before the horse. You ever hear the expression? The cart before the horse. Before you can live like a Christian... You have to be come a Christian. You've got to be saved. You've got to be redeemed. You've got to be born again. You can't ask someone to do something when they're not equipped to do it. So when Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, he is telling them to do something which they are equipped to do. You can't tell a fish to walk. You can't tell you can't someone who doesn't know how to swim to just jump in the ocean and swim. You have to learn. You have to be equipped. And the first 11 chapters of Romans teaches us what it means to become a Christian. Then, of course, like I just said, starting in this chapter till chapters 15, the 16 chapters in the book, it's how a Christian lives the rest of their life. And why? I don't want you to miss this. The why we live is absolutely beautiful. The why we do, the why I won't go to that R-rated movie, why I don't listen to certain music, why I don't watch certain television programs that everybody in the world, you got to watch this show, you got to watch this show, you got to watch this show. Someone told me, you got to watch this show. We watched it in the first show. They're having sex. I'm like, who wants to watch this? Well, you just got to get past that. I got to Jesus Christ and God the Father and the God the Holy Spirit has done for you, you will want to be a living sacrifice. When you understand how awesome God is, the only natural response was, God, I want to live for you. It's the only natural response. That's genuine Christianity. If you think you're coming here to hear New, New Testament rules and regulations, do these ten things and you'll be a better husband, do these five things, forget about it. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. I'll be starting with the word therefore in chapter 11. Can we pull that up there for a second? Is that chapter, oh chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Okay, here's the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, I want to explain something. Uh, Appeal is a very strong Greek word. It means to implore. It means to use such energy to convince someone as you would like try to push a big stone down the block. You would give all your energy to move a certain object. That's what Paul's doing spiritually. He's appealing. 
But his appeal isn't, I appeal to you because if you want to go to heaven, you have to become a living sacrifice. He never says that. I appeal to you, if you want to please God, you got to be a better husband, you got to be a better wife, you got to be a better son and daughter. He's not doing that. He says, listen, if you really want to get great with God, if you want to be right with God, if you want to please God, this is what you have to do. He doesn't do it. He simply says, I appeal to you by one thing, God's mercy. And not just one mercy. The ESV says it right. The NIV and other translations just say mercy. It's mercies. It's, 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 it's the verb. It's the plural. It's the mercies of God. It's everything he's done for you. Everything I've just explained to you in 11 chapters of this book, and now I'm in the 12th chapter, and you've got to remember 2,000 years ago, there wasn't chapter and verse. It was just one long piece of paper. If you want to have a little spiritual devotion this week, spend some time just reading Romans chapter 1 all the way through. Take today's a little bit of an introduction and it'll give you a little more insight and study it with the ESV study Bible and you'll come back here next week very enriched spiritually. And then come tomorrow night and come Thursday prayer. I urge you by the mercies of God come to prayer Thursday night. How's that? I urge you by everything God has done for you to get out of the couch and come to prayer. How's that? These mercies, which are the only leverage Paul uses to appeal, starts in chapter 1. I want to go to chapter 1. I want you to follow with me as I go and explain the first 11 chapters to the best I can before we get into chapter 12, which I'll pick up in the second, uh, second series. Paul says this starting in the 16th verse. Chapter 1. This is a spir- God's spiritual indictment against humanity. Paul is speaking as a New Testament prophet. Listen to what he says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in things that have been made, so they... Humanity are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We can go on and on and on. Hopefully you'll go home for this. But we see here the birth of idolatry. And it abounds in these verses. And afterwards we didn't read it, but there's the characteristics of idolatry, which is uh, sexual immorality. It always follows idolatrous behavior. So somebody was telling me, but I'm not an idolatrous behavior. 
So do you look for the aisle or do you look for the behavior? The behavior tells sometimes where my heart really is. If there's righteous behavior, then I am right with God. If there's unrighteous behavior, guess what? I'm acting more like a pagan, an idolater, who's traded in the glory and the image of God. So idolatry is abounding in here. Paul says this, man has no excuse. That's the indictment. No human being can stand before God and say, I didn't know. Paul just took that off the table. Every man is summed up. But then you would say, what about the good man? There are good people in the world. Not everybody's uh, a pagan idolater. There's a lot of good people in the world. And that's a a real question. So Paul answers that in chapter 2. Listen to chapter 2. It speaks of the moral man who has still many blind spots. Anybody here got blind spots? You better say yes. Okay. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves? That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you are hard and impenitent in heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render it to each one according to his works. You see... What the moral man does not know about himself is that he still has many, many, many flaws. Even a good man, even a good woman still has many flaws. And one of those great flaws is to judge other people while you still got your own flaws in your own heart. That is a real problem in the world today. Amen? It was a problem back in Paul's day. And Paul's addressing this. Because people would have said, but Paul, that's why he says, oh man, it's a rhetorical device. And what he's saying, there's people out there that tell me, Paul, not everybody's bad. And he was right. There were many Stoic philosophers that preached the moral message. But God's looking for perfection. And what Paul is saying here, God judges the judgments of the heart. And this is a big one. When you find out, and I found out, find out that God has jurisdiction over the thought life. We're all running around thinking sin is an act of this. Sin is in the heart. That's original sin. It's in the heart. And we can easily sit there and, 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 and sell ourselves as some great moral human being, but yet I'm judging people, I'm prejudiced, I'm, uh, this one I don't like the way they dress, I don't like the way this one eats, I don't like the way this one does. And, and, and we think that we're righteous. And, and Paul's saying, be careful. Be, God sees that judging heart. And you know what Jesus says? Be careful that you judge, otherwise you will be judged. So Paul just, how can I say, he pulls the rug out from underneath the moral man who thinks he's got his act together, not realizing that God judges the secrets of the heart. Isn't that a scary thought? Not scary to me no more. God knows everything about me. And it all ain't no no good. Matter of fact, it's not very much good. 
but he accepts me, he has forgiven me, and he's working on that part of me. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful news? But he moves on now. Moving into chapter 3, he starts to talk about all humanity. He's summing up the first three chapters. He's summing everything up. He's summing up the Jew and idol of the Jew, the moral man, uh, the pagan man. He says this now, starting in, in, in chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. It's not just the moral man who needs God. It's not just the pagan who needs God. He's saying the Jews, we need God too. No, not all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses cover all our human faculties. The mind, the heart, the mouth, the hands, the feet. What Paul is saying on his indictment against humanity, against the moral man, against the religious man, all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. And he sums that up in verse 23. Listen to this in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's indictment against all men. So when you are witnessing the gospel and you're saying, but but, you know, I'm not that bad, but I go to church, but I do this. All you do is go into the book of Romans and say, listen, no one passes the test. You see, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. The gospel says no one's good. But then listen to Paul in verse 24. Listen to how the whole tone changes. The whole tone changes. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation is a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there are people, when I'm speaking to them about Jesus, they never get to this point. As soon as they hear about sin, as soon as they hear about God's indictment, as soon as they hear about no one's good, no, no, no not one, that all are full, they, they can't go on any further. They don't want to hear it. They shut their mind, they shut their heart. But for us who continue to listen, and we hear the indictment, the indictment, Brian Martin, you're just a garden variety sinner. You're part of a world that doesn't seek God. No, not one. You, Brian, are part of everybody else in humanity. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then we say, but what must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be justified. So by all, God means Jew, Gentile, religious person, irreligious person, moral person, immoral person, good people, bad people. This is the condition of every individual in the eyes of a righteous creator. You can't get away from God's sight. He sees everything. He knows everything. He forgets nothing. 
And this is the God who has zero tolerance towards all sin. But Paul is quick to point out that salvation is a gift from God. Whether the Jew or the Gentile, the bad or the good, the religious or irreligious, the moral or immoral, the good person, the bad person, it is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Christianity is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. Listen to how Paul says it again. And are justified by his grace. It means you don't deserve it. But he gives it to us. But then there's that little thing in the back of the human mind. That's good. But what must I do? One of the brothers that are here, I love him. We love one another. When he first started coming to Christ, he kept on saying, what must I do? I've got to do something. This is good news, but I have to do something. You're telling me, I, what can I do? I have, I have to earn it. I have to do something. We're such a performance-based creature, aren't we? Yes. We really have this performance-based, if my, my, you know, my wife is going to love me because I do A, B, C, and D, you know, and we're all going to love one each other because everybody's doing the to-do list. So that's how we love each other. Everybody's got, they all got it done. We'll never do the to-do list perfectly for God. It's a gift to us. His salvation is a gift to us. You cannot earn it. Humans like to earn things or try to base salvation on something eternally good within them. But chapter 4 tells us something different. Listen to how Paul says it in chapter 4. He's using an Old Testament example of the father Abraham. And Paul explains this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now here's something Paul's telling us, it's not what you can do. It's how you believe. You believe in him who did it for you, namely Jesus Christ. Paul uses the contrast between those who work, and that means try to be accepted by God through some kind of moral way, or some kind of religious way, or feeling good about themselves, or maybe helping people. And so that's a work in the eyes of God. So Paul uses this contrast. Then God owes them something at the end. And that's why Paul says no one's going to boast to God. No one's going to stand before God and say, here I am. Open up the pearly gates. I was perfect. I wasn't like the rest of the people on earth. And God's going to say, oh, thank you very much. Come on, come into heaven. Come over here. Let me give you the best. Forget it. Forget it. God owes us nothing but wrath. He's a just, righteous God who has zero tolerance towards all sin and those who commit it. Period. I can prove it to you. He crucified his son who had no sin. But he took our sin on his behalf. Think about it. God has to judge 
sin. But he makes a contrast between those who trust in God. That God has done something. And this is where we come in when God, Paul, urges us to be living sacrifices. This is where we come in as a genuine Christian. We're the ones who trust in God's grace, that God has done something for us. That namely, in the life and the death of Jesus Christ, is the gift of eternal life. And that the only thing a human being can do now is stop trying to please God in the flesh, trying to be good with all their blind spots and just simply come to Jesus and say, Lord, I need forgiveness of all my sins. I repent and I trust that Jesus Christ died for me. This is the one who God forgives and blesses in this life and the next. In the same chapter, Paul uses another Old Testament example of this person. Listen to King David. Who's that five? Okay. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work. Listen to David. As Pastor John prayed before, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So we see that Christianity is a blessed life. And Christianity starts with the greatest blessing of all, forgiveness of our sins. Now, as Christians, we say, oh, the forgiveness of our sins, we, we know that. But you know, when God forgives us of our sins, he takes away the shame, he takes away the guilt. That's the stain of sin. It's there. And all of a sudden, we want to live for the Lord. We want to love the Lord. We can accept his grace. We can accept his mercy. We accept his forgiveness. We're totally free. Our conscience is free from all sin, all guilt, all shame. I can face the past. I got hope for the future. And I got power to live life today. Because you're forgiven. How many of us have blown it in life just to ask somebody for forgiveness and they give it to you? How freeing that is to be forgiven. How freeing it is to forgive somebody. So we see that Christianity is a blessed life. As David said, and this great blessing starts with forgiveness. The just and righteous God who has zero tolerance towards all sin and those who commit it sent Jesus to take our place. This is the gift of eternal life. Listen to chapter 6 as we're going along. These are the mercies of God. There's not one mercy. There's mercies of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Going into chapter 8, he sums up chapter 6, 7, and 8. Sums up some of the finer points of spiritual life. And it introduces us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. By using another contrast, Paul shows us two distinct ways of life. Two polar opposites. In chapter 5, 8-5, I'm sorry. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those are the people who are not born again. You can go to church all you want. You can try to be good all you want. But if you're living under your own desires, if you're living under your own passions, if you're trusting in yourself to be a better person, the Bible calls that living in the flesh. 
and those who live according to the flesh can never please God. But then he goes on, but those who live according to the Spirit, those who have been born again, they set their minds on the things of the Holy Spirit, the things of God. And that's why, when I opened up an introduction, and our friends don't understand why we're living sacrifices, and why I won't watch certain things, I won't read certain things, I won't hang out with a certain type of person, I won't do certain things anymore, I don't go near it, I won't touch it, and people think that's strange, is because the Spirit of God lives in the believer now. The difference between these two groups are the first never truly asked for forgiveness. The other group did and received the blessing as God said to David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The forgiveness of sins would be meaningless unless God himself told us and shows us. Let me explain that. And this is what Paul is getting to in chapter 8. Which he does because we are blessed with God. We have the Holy Spirit now in us. And myself and every true Christian, when you know you are saved, when you know you are redeemed, when you know you are born again, you know intuitively that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. You look at the book and you look at the Bible and you say, praise God. Now I know what it means to be a Christian. I'm a forgiving man. I'm a forgiving woman. I'm forgiving of every transgression, every thought, everything. That's God's job. In chapter 9 to 11, Paul shows us of the mysterious work of God behind everyone who is saved. The mysterious work of God. Did you ever really come to think, how did I get saved? Did you really ever think, why all of a sudden you put the brakes on and said, I want to live for God? Paul shows us in chapter 11, he sums up three chapters in this one verse of scripture, 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basics of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul closes this section of Romans, that's 11 chapters. He closes it with a doxology about God's incredible wisdom. Listen, this is Paul. After writing 11 chapters, he almost goes into a frenzy. It's like he's, he's, he's raptured up into heaven and he just cries out, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable is his ways. He goes on to say, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who has been his counselor? Nobody. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For in him and through him and to him are all things. Paul goes to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when Paul says, therefore, my brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. That's what he means. 
That might not seem like much, but this is why we live for God. This is true Christianity. We live for God as living sacrifices because what everything that God has done for us. So when people are laughing at me or mocking you because you have deep convictions and values about life now and you won't even be caught in an elevator with a woman by yourself or you won't do this or you're not going to watch an R-rated movie or you don't dress a certain way, you don't act a certain way, you don't talk a certain way no more, you don't go to certain places anymore and they look at you and say, well, I go to church and I don't do that. Well, it's because you're not a living sacrifice. The reason we choose to be a living sacrifice is because of our 11 chapters. God has poured out his mercy and he has shown us how much he loves us. Are you with me? These are the mercies that change us. And this is interesting. It's on these mercies alone. He now encourages genuine Christian living. There's no threats. If you ever go to a church and they're basically threatening you to change your life, get out of there. (laughs) Jesus came because we can't change our life. Our whole life rests in these 11 chapters of this great gift And when we're slow to change, is anybody slow to change in here? We go back to chapter 2. And we remember those words. Don't forget, it's God's patience and love and kindness that lead us to repentance. God is patiently and long-sufferingly watching over us whom he loves. Changing us from the inside out. But Brian, it's been going on for decades. Don't worry, God has more patience than me. How many people still need deeper work in their hearts? God is slow. He is patient. He's doing something. Hold on. Whatever you do, don't try to change yourself. And whatever you do, don't make a promise to God. Just go back to chapter 1 and say, that was me. Go to chapter 2, say, that was me. Go back to chapter 3 and say, God, I accepted the gift of eternal life. Go back to chapter 8 and say, God, let the Spirit change me from the inside out. Go back to chapter 11 and say, God, you chose me by grace. I'm holding on tight. Now, God, by your mercies, I believe you're going to change me. That's Christianity. Don't make a promise. Don't say you'll never do it again. Don't say this is the, don't, don't go there. Go to God, maybe confess to somebody. If you're girls, get a couple of girls around you. Talk to them, let them pray for you. If you're a guy, get a guys around you, let us pray for you. That's the way it works. But whatever you do, don't make a promise. It ain't going to change. Some applications and we'll take the move. <clears throat> Genuine Christianity is based on faithful teaching of these fundamental truths. The fundamental truths you should hear throughout the year from any faithful minister of the gospel. Fundamental, foundational truths are all men are sinners in need of redemption. Salvation is a gift from God himself. It's like he has open arms saying, come to me. I, I did it all for you. Now all you have to do is come. Stop trying. Stop being self-deceived. 
Don't listen to other people anymore. Just come to me and I will save you. I will forgive you and you shall be that blessed man. You should be that blessed woman whose sins I do not count against you anymore. Jesus paid our sin debt in full. We can add nothing to it today or anywhere else. You can't enhance it. Jesus alone saves. No religious resume will do it. No cultural Christianity can do it. Nothing could ever do it. Only Jesus saves. Christians are now led by the Holy Spirit, and it's an inside job. And God has chosen you by sheer grace. Make no mistake about it. Don't look inside to say, well, God chose me because he saw He sees one thing, sin, period. We offer nothing to God. He's chosen us, and he draws draws us in. God has chosen us by sheer grace. He draws us to himself by sheer grace. And through the faithful witnessing of others, other Christians, sometimes we'll come in quickly. Sometimes you speak to somebody about God, and they come. Other people, it takes a long time. And they come. But it's all by grace. Amen? And we'll close with this. Christian ethics, of which Paul is going to speak about now in chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15 of Romans, is a natural response to those who are genuinely saved. When I come up here and I speak, John preaches and we teach, I am not trying to get you to do something out of fear or manipulation when I speak to people and we're having coffee and we're doing things, I just point them to Jesus Christ. He is the only answer. Manipulating people with fear and, and trying to get them to do something or say something, some kind of emotional appeal. Paul is making an appeal, but it's not an emotional appeal. It is a theological, doctrinal appeal on everything that God himself has done for us. There's a difference Preaching that tries to scare people to change their lives never works. And if it does, it's a short shelf life. In a year, they're gone. Old sin habits come back. It never changes them. Preaching that is always reminding each other of what God has done for us is the only antidote for sin's power. Are you with me? The only antidote is to be reminded of what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. Yes, sometimes correction is needed, rebuke is needed, and instruction is needed, as Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy. But even then, even after rebuking, even after correction, even after loving instruction, please hear me, after a loving rebuke, a loving instruction, and a loving correction, even after these exhortations, we need to remind people of God's mercy towards them. You have to leave the conversation. The sermon has to end on God's mercies towards us. Not on what you have to do. The sermon ends on what Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen. I will fill in the blanks of what it means to like be a living 
sacrifice in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. But Father, we love you and we praise you, Father God. And I thank you that I had the opportunity to the best I can, Father God, to try to faithfully explain the Christian gospel. God, if there's anyone in this room that never understood it or finally got an aha moment, I pray you speak to their hearts about Jesus Christ. And God, for the rest of us that genuinely know this, Father, let us become living sacrifices, empowered by all your mercies in Jesus Christ, what you've done for us. God, change us from the inside out by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Father. And I thank you, God, for everything you've done for us in Jesus' name. Hold on. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. And as we get ready for communion, I don't know what God was speaking to you today, but bring that to the communion table. Think about it. Ask God to strengthen you. Maybe you want to be grateful for something. Maybe you're grateful for God's ongoing work in you. That he realized that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. The ushers are coming up. Father, prepare our hearts to take of communion. Let us be mindful of all the mercies you have done for us, God, that you chose us, you gave us of your spirit, you've forgiven us of your sins, our sins, Father God. And now we're co-heirs with Christ, and we have the spirit of sonship within us, God. Help us to love you and to love one another, Father God. And as we partake of this, infuse grace into our hearts, God. You're so kind, you're so good to us, God. Forgive us all our failures and our imperfections, God, and our sins, God. Lord Jesus, come and strengthen us once again. Yes, Lord Jesus, come and strengthen all of us once again so that we can truly live as living sacrifices. In your name I pray.